So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Be tough. Don't, be, don't cry about that. What are, you, what are you crying about? That's often how they feel to say. That's how I was raised. When, right. you, when you try to do parenting coaching. Don't be a, with don't be a wuss. Don't be a, that's how I was raised. My dad talked to me and look at me. And so maybe they're very effectively achievement oriented. So they're saying, look, I'm so successful and I was raised this way. But what they don't realize is how close are they in their intimate relationships and how close are they to their child because your child is feeling it. You may not be now, but fortunately, if you're lucky, your child's still feeling your criticism. Because if your child's no longer feeling your criticism, that's not a good sign. And that's really what happens. Eventually, you just tune it out. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, Sue Marriott. I am happy to be back in the studio with you. Absolutely. It's so nice to actually be recording together. We've been doing so many crazy things separately, and yeah, it's fun. So let's do this. Let's do, let's do some announcements. You know how we've been talking about how important at Therapist Uncensored that we build community. We are really excited. We've been hinting at this, suggesting it, but we're going to do it. We're going to have a live meetup here in Austin, Texas, and we are going to encourage live meetups wherever Therapist Uncensored reaches. On April 22nd, this is all going to happen simultaneously. We've already had a couple of people sign up to host in their local community. So wherever you're hearing this from, our idea here is we're going to be announcing, like, so if somebody wants to host in Boise, Idaho, or in Calcutta, or in Sydney, Australia, wherever you're listening from, you just raise your hand, let us know, and we will announce it. Basically, all you would have to do is find a location for people to gather. And, you know, everybody will pay for themselves, things like that. No big deal. But there may be other listeners of this podcast near you. And especially if you're in a metro area, New York, you guys are one of our highest listeners, Los Angeles, of course, the big hubs. So if somebody will just raise their hand and say, hey, let's meet at, you know, Sour Duck, you just need a big patio or something. The notion is that anybody that's also listening to the podcast that's maybe a neighbor of yours, you guys already have a ton in common. Like not everybody listens to a neuro nerd kind of podcast. That's, that's for sure. That's so if, right. if you are interested in this, you have some commonalities. That's what we assume. So even if you just have one other person in your community, that's enough. It doesn't have to be a huge one. We want everybody in the same day to gather and talk amongst yourself, get to know you, have the community, have connections. So we're going to do it in Austin, Texas on April, April 22nd. April 22nd at four o'clock. I know we have a host volunteer in Milwaukee. We have several host volunteers already. Bozeman, Montana. Oh, that's true. And I think one in Australia. I'm not sure which city yet. 
But I think what we are going to do, if you volunteer to be a host, you're not going to have to pay for anything, but I think we are going to send you a Therapist Uncensored t-shirt. So when people get to your location, they'll know where to find you. And just a thank you. And just to thank you for doing it. So all you have to do to host again is send us your name. You could do that at info at therapistuncensored.com and just say, hey, I'd love to be a host and we will start coordinating that all together. That's right. And if, so if you're interested in attending, if there's one in your area and you want to attend, we're going to be funneling you to our Facebook group and we'll have an event on the Facebook group that will be about this. And so in the chatter under the event, you can say, hey, is there anybody in the this region in the Southeast or wherever. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. It might be that zero people show up, but that's cool. That's fine. <laughs> that's fine. This way. But hopefully in Austin, Texas, I think right now we have one location. You mentioned Sour Deck. Sour Deck. I think that's going to be the location. Uh, let me tell you all a side story. Anne is really wanting to like <laughs> spend the next couple of weeks like going to different events, going to different locations and checking out the vibe and seeing how nice the people are. And you know what I mean? Like having it be an event, like a scouting event to find the perfect <laughs> location. So, so we call that me circling my blanket. So we could actually, you could see, we, we always talk about sort of our different dynamics on the podcast. So who do you imagine wants to be decisive? We went to a place. This is it. This is fine. Let's name it. And I'm like, let's circle the blankets. Let's ride our bikes all over the city. It's just also an excuse to play around, right? And find the location that is just right. So right now it may end up being Sour Duck, but we'll get back to you. But there are so many people out there that are not in Austin, Texas. But if you're out there and you have a location in mind, awesome. We think it'll be fun. We're going to want you, if you get there, more than one person, even if it's just one person that shows up when you're there that day on April 22nd, we want you to take a picture of you or your group and send it in. So Right. And we might be doing some live FaceTime and stuff like that. So it'll be fun. But wait, in my defense about the sour duck. Yes. (laughs) It is really a great place. And my notion was to already have the location, then it's, as we announce it, everybody knows where to go versus... I, I do love the scouting and the journey and the all of those things too. So we'll see how it actually lands. But it if, probably it, lands. if it lands at the sour duck, it doesn't mean that it's a sour decision. <laughs> it means it was the right decision. <laughs> it just means I already knew that it was good. <laughs> you do have good instincts, it's true. And I do have a tendency to have to circle the blanket and see all my options. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so true. <laughs> so true. Well, let's jump in today's episode. Okay. This is going to be an interesting episode. You know, we've been talking a lot about different ways that we can tell when we're in our like more defensive protective system and when we're in more our connective and open system, right? And one of the things we've been thinking about is what are the things that you can, how you can tell when you're in one and the other. And one of the big ones is self-criticism. And self-criticism can be a huge problem for so many of us. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I would be surprised if there, well, actually, there is a category when it comes to attachment of folks who are less consciously self-critical. So we'll get to that. But what's interesting about this as we get into the science around it is that, first of all, everybody has a voice. So don't feel bad if you know, you know, when we say self-criticism and you're like, I'm going to raise my hand, I feel guilty, which is already a little self-critical, isn't it? Exactly. (laughs) You're prepping your own self-critical self. (laughs) So it's not that unique to have a voice that is being critical of yourself. 
But when we can listen to the way that we criticize ourselves, then it becomes interesting. Absolutely. Because, I mean, we talk to ourselves all the time. Like you said, we have an internal voice. We have a meta voice going on more than we ever even realize. So how do we recognize it when it's just being observational? Like I spill my iced tea and I'm like, ah, you know, versus it's hopping over to that place where it becomes kind of a critical analysis of your own self. Totally. And I, I, I imagine as you're listening, like if we were doing a big world group therapy right now and everybody could speak up and say like this, this is my words that I say to myself and this is my words. We're not saying the same things. Everybody's saying something particularly unique and it probably has a theme. So it just becomes kind of interesting. It's like even right now, just reflect like when you really get going against yourself, what does it sound like? Like, is it that you're stupid? Is it that you're ugly? These are painful things to think about, but the reason that we're pointing you to them is because we're going to decode them and update them. So, you know, jumping to the end, one of the cool things about security is basically that you have a secure script. Those of you who have been following for a while know about internal working models. So we might kind of just try on the idea that your self-talk might hint towards your unconscious script, your internal working model. So one of the things to think about, you just asked everybody to kind of slowly think about it for themselves. What would, just take another moment again, what would be your most common moments of self-criticism? And what would the theme be? I like how you're saying that. I know for me, my self-criticism often comes when I've realized I've procrastinated too much and then I'm up against a deadline. That is brutal. If I have uh, distracted myself and postponed and then I'm about to maybe jump on an interview or something and I haven't done my sufficient prep, I can feel that self-criticism. So mine so what does it sound like? I think mind centers more around expectations of work ethic. It's not so much how smart I am, how I look. Mine is, have I done the work ethic? And I will get really rough on myself if I feel like I've lingered and I haven't shown a strong work ethic. That's kind of how it sounds like. Like, why did you not get, you know better. Mine would be, you know better. Why did you do that? You know, like... That would be my theme. What about you? Well, do you have any idea of why work ethic is your Achilles? Absolutely. I think growing up, work ethic was really promoted. I think having a strong work ethic in my mom and the identity of how hard she had to work for us, for one, and the anxiety that I would get if I wasn't doing, I can still remember. Lucille Ball. Oh, it is. I have. That's so funny that remember that. I'm sure I've talked about that before, but still, and my daughter Sydney loves the Lucille Ball show, but still when I hear that music, my stomach gets a little like anxious because I knew my mother was going to be home. I guess it was like 25 minutes from the start of that program. And if we hadn't done the work that we needed to do and started dinner, et cetera, it would make me a little anxious, mainly for her being upset, but also disappointed because I knew she was working so hard. So there's like this strong work ethic. So my self-criticism probably centers a lot on my working model around what that holds for me. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad that you said more about that. So what about you? Oh, I think mine's a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're just healthier or something. I don't know. <laughs> No, I think mine, what, a couple of things I've noticed. One is 
when I'm more dysregulated, when I'm not in a good place, my self-criticism is brutal. You said yours was brutal. Everybody, you know, I guess it's all relative. But the other thing is it doesn't necessarily come in the form of words. It's more of a feeling and it just cuts right. It's not like work ethic or it's like more of like worth. My worth, like goodness, badness, like that I'm actually bad or that my badness will be revealed. It's definitely more like core value of self. And that's what self-criticism can be. It's an embodied experience, isn't it? It's not, it's not, and the research really shows that. It's not a cognitive thought. Stop having that thought. It's really can envelop the body and it's a bodied, embodied experience. So you're really describing it in such an articulate way that it can just have a wave of feeling incompetent or unworthy. Mm-hmm. And it's a sense you can't even articulate the words that come with it at times. Right, right. Well, and, and you know, if I am thinking in words, it's actually, if we think of the nervous system, you know, the lower down that I am, the more it's embodied. As I come up, right, you have my higher thinking on, then there may be words. So there's some interesting things about this. So one is that if I'm not dysregulated, and you know, we should talk about that paper and the research. Oh, yeah, in it. for sure. So if I'm not dysregulated, I'm in a pretty good place. And I say that I'm feeling self-critical. One of the great things about that is that like, I don't know, I just don't, it doesn't go to that worth place. It's just more of like, damn it. You know, it's, it's a little bit more reality based. What you're saying is, is that when we're in our more secure way of relating and we're not activated, you can, or when you are all of us, we can be self-critical. We can go, oh, you should have prepared or you can, but it doesn't hit you on this core level. And we're able to self-reflect about it. We're able to mentalize, you know what, it, true enough, I should have started earlier, right? Like, so there's right. a way to be self-critical that isn't devastating to you and leaves a mentalization process where we can look at ourselves. So, Anne, do you have the reference for that paper? If you'll find that, and I'm going to just share a little bit about it. The reason we love this particular paper is it has to do with mental scripts. And so one of the findings is just what I'm saying right now, and it's bringing really true for me, which is that when you're in an fMRI machine and if you're being self-critical, and let's say that you score as securely attached, it shows another part of your brain that I'm going to forget because I'm not a neuroscientist. (laughs) But I probably should have. See, I could be critical of myself right now. Basically, it has to do with the visual cortex. So if you're secure and then you're being self-critical, the visual cortex lights up. And what the interpretation of that is, is that it's like you're examining the thought. You are kicking it around. It's like you can defend yourself even from your own self-attack. That like, in other words, it's a more complex, damn, I shouldn't have done that thing, yeah, but they didn't give me the information in time. Like, there's a working it. Right. There's a way of, I guess, the language that we've used a lot is the, it's a way to to mentalize around it, that you can see yourself from outside. I think what you're, okay, so the, what you're talking about is the lingual gyrus. Thank you. The oh my gosh, that's gyrus. so great. But the article that you're speaking of, and it really is a really, it's attachment styles modulate neural markers of threat and imagery when engaging in self-criticism. And it's in scientific reports in 2020. So it's a recent article. You can see how Sue and I spend our fun time. And we seriously do read this stuff for fun. So that's a whole other conversation. But um, 
it's, it was a really fascinating to see the things that we see in our office, we see in ourselves, but to really have it manifest in a way that we can describe it through brain functioning. If your score is secure on this, I don't remember. Here's an interesting thing about research, though, y'all, is that there's so many measures of attachment. What Anna and I typically talk about is developmental attachment with strange situation, AAI, the adult attachment inventory, and the adult attachment projective, those kinds of things. So when you're looking at an article, it's interesting to see how they measured it. We're going to have, we're writing a book, and in our appendix of all the attachment measures, there's a zillion. (laughs) But anyway you know, as a parenthesis, right. that that basically that there is this activation with self-criticism, with securely attached. I like how you said it. It's basically there's more mentalization happening with this lingus gyrus. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the reasons why it's so important is that self-criticism in general can activate a sense of a threat response. Yeah, that's interesting. Right, and so that's when we were started off the whole conversation with how do we know we're in our defense? Well, when we start to self-criticize or we're criticized by others, there is a sense of threat. There's a threat to our identity, to ourself. Are we going to be rejected? Are we going to reject ourselves? So there's a threat response in our amygdala, and it goes through our limbic system. Like those with secure attachment in an internal working model that says that being criticized first of all, that their body likely is not as programmed towards self-criticism. If you end up developing a secure attachment, you likely were not raised with highly self-critical parents or critical of you. So with the amygdala response, it's like we do feel a little threatened when you're in a secure place, but with that threat, it doesn't overwhelm the nervous system. It doesn't overwhelm our coping strategies. But it was really different when they looked at avoiding attachments, individuals more dismissing styles. Yeah, so basically one of the findings there is that there's not that activation of the, I'm making it as lingus gyrus, whatever. <laughs> the lingual gyrus activation. Yes, there you go. That they have an amygdala response, but there's not as much response to the lingual gyrus activation. And they speculate that in some ways that it overwhelms the coping system, that there's not this way they suppress basically the ability to mentalize. It's like it moves very quickly out. It's kind of a way to dissociate, if you will. Well, it's dismissing state of mind. Right. Right. It's dismissing one's own experience. And when we talk about being in a dismissing state of mind, we often are dismissing our own emotions as well as others. Which includes self-criticism. Absolutely. Includes the feelings of threat around self-criticism is too much so that it gets almost dissociated or suppressed. Right. And so the experience might be, as someone who is recovering from (laughs) dismissing that side of things, for sure, the experience, I think, is more, it's going to be more critical of the other person. Right. Like, I'm fine, but who is this crazy person out there? So in other words, I'm not threatened by self-attack. I'm more threatened by other people. And I want to talk about something about pleasure in just a minute, but were you going to say something? Yeah, I think it's an interesting way to kind of think about it because we often talk about, or we have talked about, one of the states that is threatening to this dismissing individual, or when we're in that state, is the threat to an identity, And so to be self-critical and to question yourself would really be activating because one leans towards dismissing because you had to rely on yourself. This isn't a negative. Remember, this is not a negative state. This is not a personality disorder to land in dismissing. It's like we had to really, when you're there and you grow into an internal working model of dismissing, it's because you had to rely on yourself. So you had to really learn to overvalue yourself because you didn't trust others 
So if you think about it, the idea of self-criticism and doubting yourself really would feel threatening. It would feel threatening, but it doesn't feel threatening because it's already suppressed. It happens so quickly. Right. And that's the one reason why we've talked about doing a whole episode on this, and maybe we we will because we've got an episode coming up specifically around the amygdala. But that's one reason we want to point out the difference between feeling threat and feeling fear. Like for somebody with dismissing attachment, you're not necessarily going to feel, oh, I'm afraid to be self-critical. You're going to bypass that experience altogether through the suppression and the act on the threat. And that's where dissociating that feeling comes out. And like, I don't have self-criticism. In fact, I feel pretty damn good about myself. Although underneath, we know that even in insecure attachment, including dismissing, there's a lot of self-doubt that's really hidden and suppressed. It's absolutely true. So basically your protective system, your defense system is active. And so your little amygdala, amygdala has squirted some you know, threat neurochemicals and you've got a little cortisol. So if you put a monitor on your finger to measure threat, it would actually be there, but you wouldn't be perceiving the threat. Right. You would have pushed it away. And it kind of leans towards why criticism of others comes out because if somebody else's A is being self-critical, that is actually really hard often on somebody with dismissing attachment is to listen to somebody else be self-critical. They want to stop it. Or like, or to be critical to them. Oh, a good point. I was actually leaning there and I forgot that point. Thank you for bringing it back. And that is that the, the identity threat. So for somebody being threatened, we often say that somebody with dismissing attachment will lean on, how could you say that about me? Mm-hmm. Right? So you being critical of them is very, very disruptive. So while they don't incorporate self-criticism, they really, we really can become very defensive around criticism from other people, which then leads to wanting to cut it off, wanting to either eye roll, shut it down, move away, withdraw, leave. All of those signs are like, I have to get away. This is too much for me. So earlier I had mentioned this idea of pleasure, and this goes exactly with what you're saying, Ian, which is if we just very quickly go back, so here's this dismissing adult, but in childhood, what that means if they're a dismissing adult is that that was adaptive for their environment, which I really appreciate you saying that earlier. Just, we can't emphasize that enough. It's not a pathology. It was adaptive early on. But if we break that down just a little bit more, what happens if you have a good environment, a good enough environment, then you're distressed, your little brain is distressed because we can't calm ourselves down then the bigger brain is responsive and takes care of us. And guess what happens is we feel relief because we come back to homeostasis and that gets patterned. And then pretty soon we're going to feel relief when the caregiver is even nearby because there's a feeling of pleasure. So it works basically. That makes sense. Yeah. And so then we want to be near the caregiver and their presence is soothing just in and of itself. Another way to look at it is rewarding. It's rewarding. Now, when you have had to, as you're saying, depend on yourself, that's great. But what's missing is you're not getting the pleasure of the success of being soothed. As a matter of fact, what can then eventually happen is that it might not be pleasure, but your homeostasis has to do with being on your own. So then when you have someone near, we're, okay, now we're grown back up and we have a partner, that can actually evoke the threat system rather than oxytocin and all the good stuff that we really want to be happening when you're in a really dismissing state. And being alone can give you the feeling of relief. Because you're not warding off that sense of threat. 
That's exactly right. right. So I thought that was, that was one of my like ahas about some of this and reading more. And it also really emphasizes what Ann and I talk all time about, about this being a morally neutral stance. It can cause us problems for sure, but we don't want to approach it that the person's just being an asshole. <laughs> that is so important, Sue. And if you think about it, what often happens in relationships, let's say you're in a conflict and somebody's being critical of the other person, which happens in conflicts. Not ours. Not ours. <laughs> <laughs> but you have some criticalness coming. And, you know, if again, if we lean, if we, if we continue the conversation about being in a dismissing state and you're hearing criticism and that's activating you, if the individual doesn't accept self-criticism very much, guess what's happening? Your criticism, while they're activated, is not actually going in as insight. There's mm-hmm. not a light bulb going on. Oh, my God, you're right. I'm an ass. Like <laughs> that, that happens less for somebody who lives in dismissing attachment because it's overwhelming. So then what can happen is that person leaves, withdraws, walks away, goes into their office, shuts the door, puts on a gaming device. And what can happen is that can really piss somebody else off. So then guess what happens? They get approached with more criticism. I can't believe you withdrew. You walked away. How dare you? When really they're doing what their body... They're self-soothing. They're self-soothing. And doesn't mean it feels good. I'm not saying it's right. But they're self-soothing. So when that other person comes in and is now more mad because you've withdrawn, you can see how this cycle... Yeah, the pattern. The pattern really, really gets very entrenched. And so one of the points of this is like self-criticism... And criticisms from another person, other criticism, I guess, is, is like really impactful on the nervous system and our sense of felt well-being. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, it evokes the stress response for sure. And to be able to move out of that, we have to really, we noted that if we're in a secure place, we have the ability to mentalize. So that's one reason why we want to wait to really talk about these difficult things when you're upset instead of pointing out the criticism while activated on either side. It's just not productive. We don't have the mental capacity to mentalize, to reflect, to kind of take that in and how important that is because it's important when we mentalize, we actually then integrate that criticism. We can learn. Exactly. If, if we're in the window of tolerance then our hippocampus is active. The hippocampus is the part that can begin to form memory, autobiographical memory. And it's like, oh, when this happens, I've learned this and this and this. Versus when we're more dysregulated, we can't learn. Like you're saying, there's no uptake of information that is like, oh, oops, you know, I'm going to change this. Now, again, remember, we're moving towards, again, we're listening to our self-criticism and we're playing with what's the script that we've internalized, which is our internal working model. And we're still aiming towards a more secure script, which we're going to name some of what that sounds like in just a minute, but probably we should go on over to the red side and talk about preoccupied self-criticism. Yeah, but preoccupied self-criticism often centers on criticism related to relationships. It's not necessarily related to achievement, et cetera. Of course, any of us can, no matter where we fall, can have self-criticism about any of it on achievement or our looks or anything based on our internal working model. Wait, wait, wait. Can I say something about that? Oh, yeah. It's not just individual. Yes. It is not just because of our internal working model. Part of why we attack ourselves is because we live in culture 
that attacks us and that makes us, I mean, what marketing is about is making you feel deficit and then the product will make you feel better, whether it's your pimples or your belly fat or whatever it is. That's a great, great point because we're talking about- We're not self- doing this to ourselves. We talk only. about self-criticism as if we walk around only responsible in our childhood, only responsible for what happens in our head. And we all know that that is absolutely not true. It's a really great point. And as a matter of fact, when you talk cross-culturally, and thank you, shout out to all the folks that listen from all over the world. We are so blessed to have a following in over 200 countries. So in some cultures, they don't struggle as much with self-criticism. That's really true. And shame is not the go-to. And for our culture, shame is, you know, Brene Brown. Like shame, it's a thing. And so many of us can identify with it. But in some cultures, that's not true. So I just, the point being that the bigger picture, the culture, our context really does also impact this. No, that's a, that's a great point. So in talking about self-criticism, when we're in a preoccupied state of mind or if we live more in a, a preoccupied internal working model, we likely struggle with self-criticism more than any other internal working model because the core of that is that we haven't really learned to trust ourselves. And so there's a a frequent experience, not only of self doubt, but that we are causing those around us to push away. And it's often very centered on any idea of social rejection. What did we do that could lead to somebody pushing away, judging us or being critical of us? Yeah. How many people like after an interaction and you're driving home or whatever, walking home later in the middle of the night, you're going over it and going over it. And you can remember and visualize the person's face not quite catching what you said. And oops, maybe you made a mistake. Like that sort of stuff. That Those are all signs of that preoccupation. And with criticism, once we're in a more activated, red, preoccupied state, that could go either way. Yes. It can be self-attack or we can project that out into the world. And a lot of times when we do project it out into the world, we're imagining the self-attack, but it's coming from someone else. That's a really Does good that way make to, sense? Yes, the way I said it? Yes. Which also, it's critical of that person, like, oh, they're just eye-rolling me, and they just think I'm so stupid, and, you know, it's still critical of that person, but we project our own insecurity into other people and then feel it as if it's coming towards us. So the statement we often use to describe that is, how could you do this to me? And it's a feeling of, I've done something, you're rejecting me, how could you reject me? But underneath it, there is this self-incrimination. Right, like I'm rejectable. When we're in a red state or anxious attachment state, we have a a heightened amygdala response. That is certainly the experience in the brain of a highly sensitive amygdala response, which also means that we walk around ready to feel threat. So Sue and I often talk about wearing sunglasses as a distortion. So when you're in a red or avoidant state. Basically when you're dysregulated, dysregulated. when you're not in the green state, either either direction, dysregulated up, up the nervous system, sympathetic, or dysregulated down the nervous system, parasympathetic. Go ahead. So we're Sorry. talking upright. <laughs> we're talking upright now. You have sunglasses on that says you're more likely to interpret things out there as threatening. As a misinterpret. Misinterpret. And and misinterpret them as negative. And here's the other thing. Misinterpret that the cues you're picking up are about you. Right? (laughs) And so you experience... My pimple is gigantic. Everybody... Everyone is looking. (laughs) (laughs) 
So that's a really hard part to deal with that if you have, and it's not unlikely to ruminate and to have an experience of a lot of negative self-attack. And then what we can do to ourselves is then self-attack ourselves for having all this negative rumination, (laughs) which really sucks. And we really want to point out how important that this is not a cognitive process. This is not something to just stop doing. And that, you know, we were speaking about what can happen when a blue person shuts down and leaves. When somebody is in a highly anxious state and self-critical, it's very tempting to try to just tell them to stop acting that way or thinking that way. Yeah, you want to push away. Right. Like, because- and that's, an, that's a sign, actually, that you're with someone that's a little bit moving into the red is typically you, they're leaning in, even with their words and their pace and their urgency. Basically, if you could imagine, like they're leaning in and it causes us typically to begin to pull back. And so if you're feeling that pullback feeling, you know, like the wide-eyed pullback feeling, probably they're in an activated red state. That's a really good way to put it. And what they talk about in, in some of the brain studies, that the areas that are actually elevated during that state and the, now should we try it, the dorsal anterior cingulate and the anterior insular regions, all of these regions are actually associated in our brain with rejection-related distress. And in those areas, they actually become more activated, which is also really interesting because avoidant attachments tend to get less activated in these regions. Related to rejection. Related to rejection. When they do studies that involve social exclusion, that somebody in a red state is much more likely to have this heightened activity in areas while somebody in a blue state is going to be lower activated. So part of what that means is if you know that you tend towards that red, more activated, preoccupied state, it's not that you can't trust yourself. It's that you need to learn that your equipment tends to lean in a certain direction. So it's like if I'm feeling like they're all talking about me or that that they're still thinking about this, I can sort of self-correct a few degrees back around probably they're not thinking about this. Like, in other words, this is all using our higher thinking and it assumes that we're in the window of tolerance, but it is actually a skill. It's a learnable skill. So this gets into what script we want people to hear. Yeah. You know, this we can, since we've been kind of research focused, let's throw in the part of how sometimes they activate different attachment experiences in the moment in research is by doing what they call a secure attachment priming. And it's an amazing impact. And that basically means that we prime our bodies in a more secure way. And that can be even showing individuals images of secure relating to people, hugging, like social relationships that are getting along really well. Soft eyes. Yeah. Soft face. Having It also helps to have individuals imagine secure relating through past relationships. But the point of this is not to try to induce some research activity out there. The point of it is, is that priming our bodies for positive social support in any way calms these regions of our minds and our brains that we're talking about that get activated and pull us more into our secure way of relating where we aren't pushing all of our self-critical buttons or other critical. So as well as being able to help each other. So being able to say, I'm really upset, but I'm here for you. 
you know, being able to soften your eyes, being able to lower your voice and imagine, or if you're on your own, imagine somebody coming towards you in a caring, loving way could really activate your body. Right. And we're primarily talking about secure relationship with self. And we want to build secure relationship with self because basically you can hear with the self-criticism, there's not a very secure base in there when we're actively criticizing ourselves. So just you saying those words, Anne, I could already actually feel a physiological response about like people hugging like or real smiles, like like not fake smiles, people lying together, relaxed, a mother holding a baby and gazing. These are some of the primes that can evoke the right neurochemicals in our body. Again, this is amoral, meaning it's not, if I'm preoccupied and I'm not trying to be difficult, I'm just being difficult <laughs> because my, that's the neurochemical soup that's act. I mean, I'm literally responding to my body. Right. To your, in, your intensified amygdala response. Right. And all the neurochemical ability to mentalize as we were talking about. Yes. It and early. then, and then what happens on that side is I'm more focused on what y- you and like it's, and I don't believe I can soothe myself. I believe I need you to get, I need you to understand me and give me what I want. I, I, you'd have to give me this feeling or else I'm not going to be okay. That's a preoccupied script. Well, let's bring it back to the self-criticism. So I love where you're going. Let's use active sentences, what we might use if we're being self-critical. So rather than running the script of, I need you to understand me right now, or, you know, I need to have this feeling or else I can't let go, right? What we're wanting to help you move towards and help ourselves move towards is this doesn't have to end perfectly. I'm going to be okay. This person that I'm upset with is good enough and I'm going to be okay. Like, it's moving back towards the secure sense. And it's not perfect. It's not like, oh, I'm wrong. And really, everything's okay. It's more of this is hard. So when you're in a secure state, you can handle things. So it's like, I can handle hardship. That will be okay. I can feel feelings and be okay. And just the idea of being able you know, listening to her voice, it's just very calming me down. But it's a way of I'm going to be okay is this sense of generated a sense of security, even though your threat is feeling like, oh my gosh, you're reminding your body. And I guess we could bring that in, especially if we tend to be self-critical and like, oh, I'm so stupid. I'm like, you know, just say, wait, no, 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 no. I tend to say that. I tend to be really hard on myself and that's okay. Mm, you yeah, know? Self-compassion. Is the self-compassion. So secure scripts sound like things like, it's okay for them to need me. I might fail sometimes, but I'm going to be able to help this person. It's okay that I lost my temper and I was way activated. It's okay. It's because my body did that. I'm okay. And not only am I okay, but I trust that this other person's going to be okay. I haven't broken them. And if they need help, they're going to get the help they need, or maybe they'll turn to me and I can help them be okay. It's okay for me to need something. I get to need things sometimes. I get to ask for help. I don't have to be perfect. I think a big one is, again, with the criticisms, like, I realize I did this really dumb thing, but I'm okay. I did this thing, but I'm not the thing. Oh, my God. Say that again. Well, I did this, but I'm not this. I let myself down because I wasn't prepared, but I am generally 
a really good person. I'm really worthy. I screwed this thing up, but I am worthy. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm going to get a second chance and I'm a third a chance. chance. And nobody is going to, because sometimes you have to really think, if you've, you've really heard a friend's feelings and you just are horrified, you have to just then imagine the secure ending instead of being preoccupied with a negative ending. Imagine things will be okay. I will be all right. When they do prompts with photos and things like that and you make up a story, secure when we're in a secure state of mind or if you happen to come by natural attachment security the story that you tell is both you're capable there's help available and that you know a lot of times the prompt will be and then what happens next and always the what happens next is oh and then the friend comes or and like so that's like basically we're introducing the idea of the future we're not always going to feel this terrible a minute ago when you said the thing about yeah, I did this bad thing, but I'm not bad, something like that. It reminded me of an old episode when I was interviewing Bob Schneider. He's a musician here in Austin. One of the things he had said was something about the in the depth of his therapy, that his fear always, so I'm not identifying him as whatever level he is, you know, as far as what kind of attachment. But what it made me think of is, because I wanted to go back to the avoidant for a minute, because we've been talking a lot about the self-criticism and the activation. So on the avoidance side, it's like we can't quite let ourselves feel it, but if we did, it's really bad. And so mm-hmm. he had made some comment that like what he couldn't let himself think about but really thought was that he was this raging narcissistic asshole. Mm. And through the therapy, he came to that he's a narcissist. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. <laughs> right? And he's okay. Like he struggles with this thing. It was some version of that. I know that I'm bungling it, but it really reminded me of like, I struggle with this thing and I'm not a monster. And his ability to actually mentalize that and tolerate that and let that in means he just moved in the spectrum away from narcissism. He still can be narcissistic. Right. If a narcissist is worrying and thinking about their narcissism, we're that's, in pretty good shape. That's a pretty, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because another interesting thing about the dismissing not really coping with self-criticism. Often they have been raised with self-criticism. In fact, individuals who end up reporting that their parents were highly critical often land in insecure attachment on both sides. But a dismissing individual who doesn't actually let themselves metabolize self-criticism often are more likely to be critical parents. Oh yeah, they act it out. They act it out because here's the interesting thing. You know, we said that they're not mentalizing it. So one speculation is that they can't then let themselves feel the effect of self-criticism. If we're in a secure place of living or even in an activated anxious, we feel so sensitive to, to criticism that we're aware to be able to mentalize its impact on other people, right? So that that helps us. That's one reason why when we're really activated and pissed off, we can be more critical, But when we're calm, we can mentalize the impact. Well, if an individual is raised with a lot of self-criticism and they have to push that away because it's just too much, criticizing, especially throughout childhood, is overwhelming for that child's nervous system. But they're more likely to be critical parents because they have dissociated the impact. So they can criticize without imagining the impact on their children without holding that. But we will tell you that is having a devastating effect on kids. Criticizing children on a frequent basis is really, really a negative, powerful indicator. Yeah, the way that I think of it is 
you know, I've had to be tough. I, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps. So if I push my kid a little bit, then I'm like, be tough. Don't, don't cry about that. What are you, what are you crying about? That's often how they feel to say. That's how I was raised. That's when right. you, when you try to do parenting coaching. Don't be, a, with don't be a wuss. Don't be, that's how I was raised. My dad talked to me and look at me. And so maybe they're very effectively achievement oriented. So they're saying, look, I'm so successful and I was raised this way. But what they don't realize is how close are they in their intimate relationships and how close are they to their child? Because your child is feeling it. You may not be now, but fortunately, if you're lucky, your child's still feeling your criticism. Because if your child's no longer feeling your criticism, that's not a good sign. And that's really what happens. Eventually, you just tune it out. I love what you just said there. We need to highlight that statement in our show notes because the whole thing of like, once I stop criticizing, you know, or once I stop feeling it, that yeah. there's a, what that means is my nervous system has been so impacted by it that I have to shut it down. That's exactly and Which means. is, by the way, the definition of trauma. Bad things can happen to us, but if we have the resources to handle it, it's not trauma. What trauma is, is when it affects our physiology and it goes in a new way. So basically what you're saying is once they stop feeling it, it means they've had to shut down a big part of their affective world. In fact, that's probably a good way to start wrapping this because what we want to end with is we're all trying to find a way that our body can lean more towards secure relating, whether we were brought up that way or we're earning our security. And to know that if you're in the more secure place, we're busting through those myths that to like get through it and not feel it is actually a positive outcome. Nope. What we're shooting for is I can feel it. I can really experience it in my body, but I also can do it in a way that I can still mentalize and keep my thinking online. And when I lose my shit and I and <laughs> I no longer keep my thinking online, that's still okay. Because I'm aware that I'm doing it. Tears are good. Or even I'm not aware I'm doing it. But like, <laughs> again, self-compassion. It's like there's nothing. Shame does not help us in any form get more related or connected or honestly more effective at whatever we're trying to do. That's true. So if we lose it, we lose it. We lose it. And then you just, you know, then there's another beat and then there's another beat. And on that third or fifth or 20th beat, we get to stand back up and hold our head up and make repair and do what we need to do to handle that, but not coming from a place of you are a bad person. And I love us ending on the concept of repair. That's what it's all about. It's all about being able to repair with ourselves and being able to repair with others when we have lost it. And once we repair our body, we have to have repair. That's what true parenting and true connection and true relationships about. It's not getting it right. It's being able to say, I screwed up. I'm sorry. We're there. Yeah. Yeah. So secure priming as we end. So imagine a person that you feel unconditionally accepts you and that would be there for you no matter what, even if you haven't seen them in a long time. So just sort of visualize that person. Those of you that have worked with ideal parent stuff, see if you can imagine a perfectly responsive, contingent, <laughs> attuned reaction. And we want to just hang out in this place of just imagining the soft eyes and the soft face. What other kind of secure imagery do we want to close with? Well, all of a sudden I had the secure imagery of puppies and kittens. Yes. Oh my God. Oxytocin. Oxytocin. Yes. Things that can actually, if we can activate the oxytocin in one another, that is what can be the secure relating. Even listening to a voice 
that is calming like and yours. caring. Yeah. <laughs> That's calming and caring. It really can warn the system. That's right. Art, certain music, tuning yeah. into music that gives you that feeling, nature. There's somebody that I know that likes to, in, in the middle of the night, go out and you know work on their garden and like pick the caterpillars off their plants and you know what I mean? Like basically really immerse in nature and look at the sky, the dark sky and the perspective. Those kinds of things evoke this ease and this low stakes place of like everything's going to be okay. That's the way that we want to kind of end this and really invite you to just, we want to grow that part of you that, that can find your safe place and your safe people inside of you. Because remember, this is about growing security in yourself. Perfect way to wrap this up. All right, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me, because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org, or call or text 988, available 24-7.